0: we're going to do a contemplation together now. Now contemplation differs from meditation and I'll explain to you in which way and also what the purpose of it is. These words are being used differently in different traditions, particularly differently in the Christian spiritual tradition. So here we're dealing with a terminology which is used a little differently, so you need to know where we're going here. The meditation that we've been trying to do, and I think that's putting it correctly, is one-pointedly directed or focused on the meditation subject which ideally does not entail any thinking, but ideally leads to calm and tranquility, which then is our basis, our foundation for delving into the depths of a different reality as the one that we are acquainted with we are acquainted with what we call relative reality. It's a superficial and um, just mundane, useful reality. Now, the calm of the mind makes it possible to delve into depths. So meditation is primarily in the beginning, for mainly, directed towards calm and tranquility, so that the mind has a different a different ambience in it and a calm and tranquil mind with a totally different feeling. <coughs> Contemplation is directed towards insight. Contemplation takes a subject and uses that subject, seeing its universal truth but applying it to oneself so that eventually one sees oneself within the context of universality and no longer hopefully takes one's own difficulties so seriously and sees them all as part and parcel of being human so it is a universal truth which has to be used for contemplation, something that's always and for everyone applicable and seen from our own individual standpoint. It also focuses contemplation, but it focuses on a subject where there is a sort of um, explanation, maybe a sentence. And seeing that, applying to oneself, gives the mind an intuitive knowing so it isn't without the thought process now here we have to also become aware of something else which is usually misunderstood so i preempt that question when we want to become calm we want to stop thinking and to stop thinking is the greatest relief there is anybody who's ever tried it knows but when we want to gain insight we do need to use the mind but it's a totally different way of thought process the kind of thinking that we do which is distracting in meditation and the kind of thinking that we do in daily life is either discursive goes from one thing to the next or it's utilitarian how am I going to fix this so that I can get that But in contemplation, the thought process is one which arises out of an inner seeing. So it is more intuitive, and yet it still has the same sort of recognition that our ordinary thinking has. A verbal recognition. Yet it arises out of a much deeper and more profound mental formation. So we can differentiate between discursive thinking and intuitive thinking. And that (coughs) might make it um, understandable what it means to contemplate. Now when we do this contemplation now, they are called the five daily recollections by the Buddha himself, which means that he advised everyone to use these five things as a contemplation every day. Now this need not take a lot of time in one's daily life. In fact, one can do that quite easily, to remember these five things. They are laws of nature to which we all subject and which we love to forget. We don't want any part of them because they don't seem to fit into our scheme of things where we would like to arrange things so that they always um, agree with our wishes. Nobody has ever been able to manage that and yet everybody is still trying to have everything agree with their own wishes and ideas. But there are certain laws of nature to which we are subject and which we can't deny. And the less we deny them, the more ease we will be. So this is why the Buddha recommended to use these five recollections every day. They are not designed to give us any additional suffering or painful feelings. On the contrary, the Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach and that suffering and its end to reach. He wanted to show anyone who was willing to listen and practice how to get out of all suffering, mental suffering. So when we recognize and realize these laws of nature as being us ourselves, we can come to terms with them on a level of equanimity. Of acceptance and coming to terms with them in accepting them just as they are we no longer resist them and when we don't resist we don't suffer you can compare that with trying to open a door that's stuck if it's really stuck and you will just simply have to open it because you think that is the way to go through that door You push and you push and you push and it starts hurting. You hurt your hands because you push and you push and you push. Instead, leave the door where it is and go through another door. This is the acceptance of things the way they are without resisting and rejecting them and by that, having no suffering. Just being with it. So what we're going to do is I'm going to say the sentence I ask you to repeat it after me which helps a little to remember it and then I will say a few things about it which could help in the contemplation. If you yourself have better ideas about it please use them. This is a do-it-yourself trip. The only thing that happens Is information and suggestions, that's all. It all results in two things, calm and insight. So if you have a personal idea how to use this particular um, sentence that I'm saying in your contemplation, by all means, do it. I will just say a few things suggesting what to do with it. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now, please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay I have not got beyond decay. I, I am of nature of decay. <coughs> I have not got beyond decay. Now the first thing to do is to investigate whether this statement is true. Whether there is decay to be found in oneself. Primarily we will find it in the body. Look to see whether that's true. Teeth, hair, skin, whatever else you can look at. Whether this is true. And if it's true, whether you actually think of it as a very important aspect of your life. And if you do think of it, are you against it? Do you dislike it? Or do you take it as something which shows you the flow of life? I am of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. I am of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond the disease. The word disease means also unease. It doesn't always necessarily mean a dreadful illness. It means that there is discomfort in the body. It means that there are certain aspects of the body which do not feel well, but it also does mean unease in the mind. Is it a true statement? And if so, if that's a true statement, what does that tell us about this human realm? What does it tell us about our endeavors not to have that unease? Are they successful? Or should we try something else? And also, it may help us to see why does this unease, disease arise, particularly the one in the mind. Of the nature to die, I have not got beyond, death. Not got beyond death. Now, obviously, we do not need to inquire here whether this is true. Everybody <coughs> knows that's true. But what we do need to inquire into is whether we're actually taking this fact of life into consideration. In our daily living or whether we are blithely living along as if it's gonna last forever if we do take it into consideration what does that mean for us does it mean or can it mean that we will have to sort out our priorities are we ready for this definitely happening That all of us are going to experience, namely death. Or are we trying to forget about it? Do we realize that forgetting about it doesn't help us at all? All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Now, here again we have to investigate whether this is a true statement. Are those experiences which we have called mine and which were dear and delightful? Have they vanished? The people that we have called mine, are they still mine? The ideas, the thoughts, the feelings, the material belongings, are they still there? Or have they changed or completely gone? And if that is so, if they have changed or are gone, what about all those things, people, ideas, situations, experiences, which we are calling mine at this moment and are finding dear and delightful? Are we prepared to see them vanish without having any grief about it? I am the owner of my karma. I am the owner of my karma. This means that we recognize the fact that we are totally responsible ourselves for everything that happens to us and we stop laying blame at anybody's doorstep. We no longer look for a scapegoat. All the causes we have put into motion are having their effects. And it is only possible to have one's own effects. Whether we recognize the cause or not makes no difference. It means taking full responsibility for oneself. of my karma I am born of my karma here we have to recognize that where we find ourselves in this world is a karmic connection we have chosen our own parents even though we might think we could have done better but this is where we wind up because of karmic connections. So our initial birth and our daily rebirth every morning is influenced and completely overshadowed by all the causes we ourselves have put into motion. Whatever whatever happens to us every day is what we did the previous days. to my karma, I am related to my karma. And this we have to recognize as the closest relationship that we will ever have as close to ourselves as our own skin the closer much closer than any relationship with another person our own karma that's us Supported by my karma. I supported by my karma. If we are dissatisfied with our life as it is, we need to recognize that this is an effect of the causes we ourselves have put into motion. And if we would like to have a change in that support system, we need to recognize that we have to make good karma. Good karma is always connected with doing the good things in thought, speech, and action. Whatever karma I shall do, that I will inherit. Whatever I shall do, that I shall inherit. If we would like to have a valuable inheritance so that our lives are smooth, peaceful, worth our attention, we have to produce that inheritance ourselves whatever karma we do that will be our inheritance it puts the responsible responsibility squarely on our own shoulders and it's the only place where we have any jurisdiction anyone have any question about this contemplation that we've just done? This would be the time to ask it before it's forgotten again. Could you say a little bit more about karma? About karma, yes. The word karma means actually action. But the Buddha said, karma, I declare, is the intention. So it's the intention in the mind which produces our karma. So even thinking, certainly speaking, and then acting all produce results. And if we're not careful, and a lot of people are less than careful, the results are often disastrous. And we wonder why. If we haven't paid attention to what we're thinking, saying and doing, if it has been less than pure and good, we cannot expect anything else except an impure unpleasant result its cause and effect in Christianity is called as you sow you will reap there is no doubt in all spiritual traditions that we are the makers of our own destiny whatever it is that we are experiencing in our life today is what we have done in the past and past primarily means this life from the word go because what we usually do are small things of course if we do big things then we also have big results but they are usually few and far between the big ones our daily lives go on from morning to night rather like a little brook sort of meandering along and this meandering along is interspersed with our thoughts which are often negative the result is definitely negative. Our thoughts are often suppressive. Then, of course, there are other results from that. Our speech is not always in line with our thoughts. We often say things we don't mean. The results are definitely not pleasant for us, ourselves. So the small things we're doing every day are the small results we get every day. And the result is a lack of ease and a lack of joy and a lack of contentment. We're looking for ease, joy and contentment outside of us instead of inside of us where it's available. The more good karma we make, the easier it is to get in touch with that ease and joy we carry within. Certainly we have brought some results with us from the past, but they are the underlying tendencies, and they do not need to be our destiny. Our destiny is made every single day, from morning to night. The more we watch it, the more careful we are. And who should we be careful with, if not with ourselves, the better our lives go on. It's very easy for anyone who has done anything particularly strong to see the result of that. The small things, it's difficult to see the results. But the big things, it's very easy. If we've done something quite enormously good or on the other hand enormously bad the results are quite easy to see they may not come the next day but most likely the next week or the next year so the whole of our life depends on our thinking because we can't say nor do what we haven't thought first so watch the thoughts and label them and get a sort of a handle on it that they can be changed. Anyone can change their thoughts to those that are pure, those that are helpful, considerate, loving, and caring. Anyone can do it. And it is the only way we'll ever really make good karma. Because what we think we can then do. But we can't possibly do it if we haven't thought it first. So karma is in our own hands. Karma is uh, our own responsibility, we could say, of what our intentions are, our motivations. They're not always quite straightforward. Well, that too has to be accepted. Our Our motivations are often sort of half good and half bad. Well, that's all right, it's better than completely bad but it's a matter of getting to know it. All right? Anything else? Yes? I'm just following on what you said, which I I might be digressing if I tell you, then I'll talk about it later, but you said that there's no, that you can't act without having thought first. Um, Are you saying that there's no capacity for intuitive action that just, occurs without some intellectual... Intuitive thinking is also thinking. There's discursive thinking and then there's intuitive thinking. But you've got to have it first in the mind before you can do it. But most people who haven't learned mindfulness and the 99% of humanity on this globe have never, never heard the word uh, think very often that They are doing things without even having thought them, which is uh, a total lack of mindfulness and usually results in some disaster. But intuitive thinking is thinking. Yes. I know you can't do this in every situation in everyday life, but isn't it still helpful where it is possible, to talk to oneself about the situation? I'm thinking of, for example, say... uh, If one was driving a car and uh, one was upset by what somebody else did, if you are alone by yourself in the car, is a help to talk to oneself in a sense of saying, remain calm and I'm sending out thoughts of love and compassion to that person who's just offended me, that sort of thing? Is that a help or is it Yes, certainly one should do that, definitely. One can't wait for a teacher to tell one that all the time. One should definitely be one's own teacher, one is one's own best teacher anyway. I'm not so sure that that's very uh, suitable while you're driving a car. Um, maybe you should wait till you get out of the car. the <laughs> Oh, well, somebody was cutting in front of you or something like that. All oh, right, yes. Yes, then it's very useful, yes, certainly. Another thing is, of course, that you can have compassion for that person because they're having problems just the same as we all have. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Anything else? Yes? In relation to that same incident, if you're driving a car and someone does crash into you, well, you would have feelings of anger and resentment or whatever. What do you do with those feelings? Well, you have feelings of resentment and anger uh, until you've practiced well enough. When you've practiced long enough, it's not possible to have them. They don't arise. So they are not um, a given. They are unfortunate aspect of humanity. Um, when you do have them, what you do with them, you transform them, you substitute, you label them and and see that you're making bad karma, that you're hurting yourself, that you're only getting more and more upset. It's totally useless. The thing happened anyway. So you might as well have compassion for yourself as the one who's suffering um, a dented fender and for the one who's going to have to pay for it. (laughs) Just have compassion, that's all and eventually, having done that often enough and long enough, over the years, mind you, you don't do that in a week, you do that over the years, this sort of thing becomes not only second nature, but first nature. And then, all that is mind, dear and delightful, will change and vanish, including cars. They all change and they all vanish. Heaps of them. <laughs> But in the beginning you label and substitute. All right? I should like to give you a more detailed explanation of the purpose and the possibilities for meditation. And because it is usually either just a word or confused with method, We're using the breath as a method or the walking or the loving-kindness meditation. Now, these are three methods. There are many more methods available, but naturally, in a short space of time that we have here, it wouldn't be appropriate to use many more methods. And it isn't necessary either. The Buddha taught 40 different methods. And they either lead to calm or to insight or both. But what the method is, it's a key. That's all it is. If you hold a key in your hand long enough and steady enough, you can eventually stick it into the keyhole. And then you can unlock the door. Now this is what the breath here is for us or the other two but primarily the breath. It's a key and you've got to have it in mind long enough steady enough so that it can go into the keyhole which will unlock the door. Now the door is a sort of barrier to our inner life inner purity the inner life that most people are aware of are either (coughs) upset emotions or sometimes pleasant ones due to outer conditions one gets upset about something because it isn't working out the way it should or it doesn't seem to have any ego support in it, or one enjoys something because it has a pleasant feeling after the sense contact. This is the kind of inner life that we know, but there's something much more profound to be found, something much deeper, far more fulfilling and far more real. This, what I've just enumerated as the inner life, that everybody knows that one, is dependent. Dependent upon outer conditions. We either have to hear, see, taste, touch, or smell, or think something pleasant, and then things are all right for a little while until it all breaks down again and we have to get something new. Is that what we experience through the senses is, And be able to walk right through it. And others seem to be stuck right in front of it and find it very difficult. Those that find it easy are those people that have not suppressed their emotions, have very little skeptical doubt, a lot of love and compassion, and thereby also a lot of confidence. They can give themselves. This is an essential aspect of meditation. I'd like to emphasize that So that maybe you can use that to give oneself completely to the task at hand. Anything that one does wholeheartedly will have wholehearted result. Dabbling will produce dabbling, that's all. If I stand back from it and say, show me or stand back from it and say to myself well that's quite nice that meditation let's see what it brings it will bring nothing absolutely nothing one's got to fall into it with one's complete person heart and mind and the more one can give oneself in love and (laughs) compassion to other people the easier this is Obviously as one then becomes adept at meditation the other way around also holds true It becomes easier to have love and compassion This pot of gold is within the barricade is there because of our thinking As long as we think that's all we're doing we're thinking there's nothing to be found the thinking also is very often negative confused upset worried fearful we are all adding to the barricade in fact most people have built up such a barricade that there is absolutely no knowledge that there is a door even that little glimmer that there is such a thing is lost. There may be hope, and that's good. We should be forever hopeful that something can be changed. But what we need to do is we need to remove the debris. The debris which we have put there with all the convoluted and negative thoughts. And that debris that's in front of that door is what keeps us from meditating properly. That's all that debris that comes in the way. And it says, I'm thinking this and I'm thinking that and I want to do this and I want to do that. It's all old stuff that's lying there. And you may have noticed already, or some of you anyway, in the meditation, if you're labeling, that some of the thoughts that come up are about things which you haven't thought about in 20 years. Totally unrelated to anything. It's just the old debris. That's all. In fact, most of the thoughts are thoughts that you don't even want. It's just the debris that's coming up. It's floating around, so there it appears. We have ways and means of overcoming this difficulty. And the ways and means of overcoming this difficulty is sitting here and watching the breath over and over, over and over. Until finally there are moments when the debris no longer gets in the way. The loving kindness meditation, if it is very feeling, if there is a feeling which is strong, can bring that result too because it removes debris effectively. Concentration is purifying, therefore removes debris, and loving kindness and compassion are purifying, obviously, so they remove debris. And this is what we have to do. And having done that sufficiently and long enough, we experience something entirely new. The Buddha gave a list of five hindrances which beset all of us. There's no blame attached to any of that. You see, if we recognize a hindrance in us, something unwholesome and unskillful, and these are the words the Buddha uses, unwholesome or unskillful, and then blame ourselves on top of that, we've got two unskillful mental actions. One is the first one, and the other one is the blame. The only thing that is useful is the recognition, and then the change. So, these five—that list of five that he gave—is a sort of an overall list of all the major problems that beset us; those that obscure this doorway the doorway which leads within. And we obscure it so effectively that we don't even know it's there. We don't even know about this keyhole. Should we accidentally hit it, we don't even know that this is meant to be an unlocking of the door. These five hindrances have antidotes. They have antidotes in daily life and they have antidotes in the meditation. The five factors of meditation are the automatic antidote, the automatic cleaning up. The ones in the daily life we have to deliberately arouse in us, particularly when we finally have come to this realization that we're only hurting ourselves. It seems strange that people actually need to learn (coughs) it, that they're constantly hurting themselves with all that's negative in them. They're never hurting anyone else. The Buddha said about anger, something which is very useful to know, and to remember that if we get angry at somebody, it's like picking up hot coals with our bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. Who gets burnt first? In fact, we may be the only one that gets burnt because the other person may have practiced ducking. And then what good was it to throw? If we recognize the fact that these hindrances beset us and make our lives miserable, and that there are no scapegoats for them, that they're just obscuring our entrance into our inner chambers, where purity and beauty are housed, then we will certainly do something about them. As long as we don't recognize that, we won't do a thing. The meditation, however, helps us automatically. And without that automatic help of the meditation, it will be almost impossible to do the cleaning up process so effectively that eventually it doesn't get dirty again. As I said, there are five hindrances, and there are also five factors of meditation. And they have their counterparts. Now the first factor of meditation I have already mentioned when I explained that there is uh, that there are immediate benefits. I mentioned several immediate benefits. Now one of the immediate benefits was the antidote for sloth and torpor in the mind. You know very well that if you sit there trying to meditate and the mind is just foggy, sleepy, doesn't have to fall asleep completely, but is sleepy and doesn't have any awareness <coughs> in it, the meditation isn't happening. So meditation itself is the antidote for that. The Initial, it's called, the initial application to the meditation subject is the antidote, the automatic antidote for the foggy mind. Now, foggy, sleepy, drowsy, lazy, unaware, unmindful, not wanting to know is like a mind that is in a state of suspension it doesn't really live it's suspended from what it could do now sometimes people use that subconsciously as an escape system escaping from their own Dukkha Dukkha is a word a Pali word which we actually need to use. We don't have to learn a foreign language, but this is a word which comprises so (coughs) many states of mind that it is cumbersome to mention them all separately, so it is much easier to use this word. It's spelled D-U-K-K-H-A, and it means pain, grief, and lamentation, everything that is unpleasant, But it means primarily the unfulfilledness in heart and mind, the unsatisfactoriness which we experience over and over again. That's Dukkha. So we use all sorts of escape systems. One of them I already mentioned, trying to find pleasure through the senses, even if we have to go to the end of the world and come back. Another escape system is just to be so foggy that we don't have to notice anything. That's another escape system. None of them work very well because they're all limited in time, but they seem to at least do something for us momentarily. If we do this latter one, the one about not being aware of what goes on, often enough the mind becomes so foggy that it can hardly get itself out of that state meditation is the automatic antidote the initial application to the meditation subject which is the first factor of meditation as you sit down is that antidote against being foggy and drowsy even if you should then become foggy and drowsy again there has been that antidote happening and the more often one does it the more the mind becomes attuned to being awake and aware. Awake and aware without judgment. Knowing only, which is mindfulness. Knowing only. Not being judge and jury. Nobody appointed us. We are self-appointed to be judge and jury. Totally unnecessary. Makes life very difficult. This very first of the meditation is available just by sitting down and wanting to do it. And I mentioned it as one of the benefits. The next one is dependent upon concentration. It's the continued application to the meditation subject. It's usually compared to hitting the gong and then having the sound continue like we do with this little thing here. Now the sound continues. So the same way, the mind eventually continues staying on the meditation subject. It's practice, it's a skill like any other. Any skill that you have ever learned in this life, you had to practice. There's no way we can get a skill without practicing. This particular one is difficult because we have practiced exactly the opposite. Thinking, 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 thinking. Or escaping, 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 escaping. Either way. We have not practiced awareness. We have not practiced being awake and aware. So naturally, it's difficult. But then, anybody can do the easy things in life. It's the difficult ones which bring great benefit. Now this second factor of meditation, when it happens, counteracts skeptical doubt. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt to traveling in the desert without provisions, without a road map, going of course around in circles, and finally being overrun by bandits. The skeptical doubt which one has about one's spiritual practice, maybe I should do something else. Maybe another teacher, maybe another practice, maybe something a little easier, maybe something a little more esoteric, maybe something my friends are doing, or the skeptical doubt about one's own ability, I'm not spiritual enough, I can't do that, or the skeptical doubt about the usefulness of any practice like that, Mm -hmm. well, why should I worry, nobody else worries, and all the rest of those thoughts that people entertain, which are the reason Why? They don't meditate, they meditate now and then, but not really, so all these things, these thoughts disappear like magic when the mind finally stays on the meditation subject. There's no question that one can do it, there's no question that it is peaceful, there's no question that it is useful. There's no question that one has to find somebody else or something else or one's friends or something. Nothing at all. It works. One has to bite into the mango in order to know what it tastes like. If you have never eaten a mango, which is highly unlikely, and want to know what a mango tastes like and you ask somebody, they might tell you that it is very sweet. Very juicy very delicious very soft do you know what a mango tastes like could be a description of a peach couldn't it you've got to bite into it in order to know aha mango same here we've got to be able to stay on the meditation subject long enough to experience some relief from that constant work of thinking And then we know it's possible and not only that, we ourselves are capable of it and it brings something which we were actually hoping for. Now this skeptical doubt is not completely and utterly removed by that, but sufficiently to actually start practicing. Before that, the spiritual practice is just a hope. That's all. Only then one starts practicing. Skeptical doubt is only completely removed at a later stage, but it at least is so much diminished that we can do something. And do something by knowing how important it is because we've experienced it ourselves. The first one of the hindrances, the one I've already mentioned, sloth and torpor, was compared by the Buddha to being in prison. The mind is in prison. We ourselves have to unlock the door in order to get out and start moving about again. In both cases, in both of those hindrances he has (laughs) recommended that besides the meditation we also learn more about the Buddha's teaching so that we can use it in daily life to help us through difficult situations for instance remembering the five daily recollections always remembering them that is a great help in certain difficult situations and the more we remember them at easy times when things are easy then it becomes much more possible to remember them when things are difficult this is just an example so we cannot only rely on the meditation to get rid of the hindrances Skeptical doubt is Such a strong hindrance that unless We can let go of it to a great extent the spiritual path is completely blocked Nothing will happen We might run from one spiritual practice to another or walk We might try this and that but It won't go deep enough, because there's always that little factor in the mind which says, how do I know this is right? Maybe these people don't know what they're talking about. Maybe I have to try something else. I don't want to be taken in by anybody. And that little voice that's always talking is then preventing one from practicing, and it also prevents one from using one's own wisdom. We all have innate wisdom. Of course, we also have ignorance, but we also have wisdom. And unless we use it, we won't know what's right and what's wrong. And we do have enough wisdom to know that. Seeing more and learning more of the teaching and using it will help us for both hindrances. Now, being able to stay on the meditation subject for... A certain length of time is that what I compared to holding the key in one's hand long enough and steady enough to get into the keyhole. The next step is that which opens the door. Now to keep that meditation subject in mind long enough does not mean hour after hour. It just means a certain length of time without thinking. It need not even be as long as half an hour. Just no thinking. It's all available within. Now when we are able to do that, from a practical standpoint, And I will tell you what happens in the meditation so that if if it should happen, you can recognize it and use it. And the recognition means that you're awake and aware. As long as the mind is sleepy and drowsy, you can't meditate. So when the breath becomes very fine, and it becomes almost impossible or very difficult to find it at that time a very pleasant sensation arises which is so pleasant that nobody needs to ask whether was that it or wasn't it if it arises one knows it can have many different ways of arising There are 17 listed in the um, commentaries, but there are many more than that. It can be a feeling of floating. It can be a feeling of lightness as opposed to heavy. It can be a feeling of tingling. It can be a feeling of losing the boundaries of the body can be a feeling of um, the skin being very prominent, as if it is a very pleasant um, shower on the skin. Any of these, any other. It is so utterly pleasant that there's no question about it. In Pali it's called piti, P-I-T-I, not the English piti, piti. And this piti is translated very often as rapture. But when people hear the English word rapture, they expect such a grandiose undertaking that it is not correct. It's not grandiose. It's just a result of having concentrated. It's very simple. Anyone can do it. But you have to have determination and you have to give yourself to it. You mustn't stand back and say, let me see now what's going to happen here. None of that works. So this PT, this delightful sensation would be a better translation. It's sometimes translated as bliss, That too is too grandiose. It it can be. It can be blissful. The word rapture is much too big a word for people to even have an inkling of what it means, but delightful. That is quite a proper translation. And it's also translated as interest. And that's exactly right, because at that moment interest arises. And there are very few... People, although there are some, surprisingly, who get this far and then stop meditating again. Funnily enough, there are some. One wonders why. They finally got the door open and they can go in there and yet they stop again. But most people don't. Because their interest is finally aroused. They recognize the fact that meditation is something that brings them into a totally different level of consciousness. The first four of the meditative absorptions of which I am at the moment trying to explain the first one are called the fine material absorptions. They're called the Rupa Jhanas. Meditative absorption is Jhana and Rupa is body. And they are called that because in our ordinary living we have similar experiences but they are always dependent upon outer conditions. Here we are only dependent upon an inner condition, namely concentration. Nothing out there needs to happen. In fact, the less happens, the better. The more happens out there, the more distracted we get. And the more we are still trying to find our happiness within the worldly conditions. But here we have a similar experience of delightful physical sensation, which is known to us. However, not in that quality, not as subtle, and certainly not dependent upon ourselves, only on concentration. So when we experience that, We have a number of results from it. First of all, what I said already, that we will have enough interest to meditate and not think, oh, well, this is just another one of these modern fads. I need nothing to do with that. But we know that it is neither modern nor a fad. In the history books of the world, we know about meditation for 5,000 years but it may be older than that in fact it's a sign of our times that there's more and more interest in it because the times in the universe are cyclic it always goes in circles up and down, round and about so we've come away from or at least some of us have come away from the belief that technology is going to bring us happiness. We did believe that a while, and some people still do. But I think, slowly and surely, most people get an inkling of it that there must be something else. Well, this is the something else, but one's got to actually do it and not expect somebody else to do something for one nobody can do it for one this experience means that at that moment we are no longer interested in the breath because that's the key so having found the keyhole and opened the door we don't want to continue fumbling with the key, do we? I mean an open door needs no key anymore we want to experience what the first chamber contains out of eight There are eight different meditative absorptions. I will explain the first one in detail as I'm doing now and that will have to suffice for a weekend course. This is the first chamber, you may call it an entry hall. But it is the opening of the door and anyone that experiences it and has some information As I'm giving now must come to the conclusion that there is something within oneself which promises the reality of peace and inner happiness although at that time it's only a very small beginning the delightful sensation is the beginning and the knowledge that it is independent must bring about the understanding that the world hasn't got it everyone has tried i dare say most people here are still trying to find it in the world it hasn't got it what is in the world is sense contact and sense-contact, is by its own nature always dependent, never can we be free, we have to depend, and by its own nature completely impermanent, has to be impermanent. If it weren't, it would become so unpleasant that it would become straight dukkha. Most people want to meditate as an addition to the things they're already doing. It might bring something, one never knows. But what it actually is, meditation, it can substitute for all those trials and tribulations of trying to find the right thing that will give real happiness. Which doesn't mean that we're never going to hear see, taste, touch, smell, or think something nice again. On the contrary, it's going to be much easier to have the pleasant sense contact. Because we no longer depend on them and do not expect our happiness out of them. Since we have no expectation of them, it's quite alright for them to be impermanent. Nothing wrong with that let them fall apart. We know that we have something much more valuable within. The pleasantness of the sense contact is therefore greatly enhanced because the expectation and therefore the disappointment is gone. And also our dependency on them. We don't need anybody to talk nicely to us. If they do, it's wonderful. If they don't, well, that's all right. We don't have to hear or see or taste and touch if it happens that's great if it doesn't nothing has changed that is freedom a beginning of freedom and our sense context therefore will be so much more impressive because we just take them in their purity as they are without wanting to keep them, wanting to hang on to the pleasant ones, and without wanting to get rid of the unpleasant ones. So we do not have to have all these reactions. So it doesn't mean a lack of sense contact, it means that we found something better. And unless we do, life will never be quite satisfactory it will always have its ups and downs. And some people like to have their ups and downs. May they have them. If we are sick and tired of our ups and downs, then it's time to take meditation seriously. So this is one result of being able to open that door. But there's another very important result. A very impressive one. This pity, this delightful sensation or delight, is the antidote, the automatic antidote against ill will, which is a collective name for anger, hate, resistance, rejection, dislike, and includes fear. <coughs> because the only fear what we dislike, we do not fear what we love. So fear is included there. And it's the automatic antidote for that. And who wouldn't like an automatic antidote against anger? It's automatic in this way. While we're experiencing the meditation and having the delightful sensation, it's not possible to be angry, obviously. Can't do two things which are opposed to each other but it also has a residual effect and this residual effect is most important namely the mind has finally found its home the body's had a home all our lives we've got a roof over our heads we have um, comfortable chairs we have a good bed We have a kitchen where we make food, a bathroom where we clean ourselves. And when we come home from work or from being outside, we know that we can have that comfort for the body. But do we have the same comfort for the mind? We may sit in the best easy chair in our house, but the mind is still concerned with what it likes and what it dislikes with what it wants and what it doesn't want with what it worries about in the future with what it remembers from the past with all the things that it concerns itself the body can be as comfortable as anything the mind doesn't know how to do it it hasn't got a roof over its head so we are always at the mercy of our thoughts and emotions. Just as if we didn't have a home for the body and have to live on the street and would be at the mercy of the weather. Cold, we'd freeze, hot, we'd boil, rain, hail, whatever it may be. The body is at the mercy of all those weather increments. Now the same happens to the mind until it finds its own home and having been able to get inside that door, open the door and come to that delight makes the mind realize that here it has found its home it can be totally protected from all its thoughts and emotions so even during the day when it has to attend to the worldly business of living (coughs) making money or looking after a house or whatever it is that one does during the day even at that time the mind knows in the evening it can go home just like the body will find that nice easy chair and the good bed and a kitchen, and a bathroom, where it will be comfortable. Just so the mind knows, in the evening, it will be able to sit down on the pillow and find its own home again. And thereby, knowing that, all the unpleasant happenings during the day no longer have their sting. There is protection. Just as, We know we can go home in the evening from work and don't have to live on the street. The same way the mind knows it can go home in the evening and doesn't have to have unpleasant emotions and thoughts, worries and fears, dislikes, hopes, plans. It can (coughs) relax in its own delight. And therefore, during the day, it feels protected. It does not have the ability to not react all the time but it certainly has the ability to react less because it knows also that all the things that happen during the day are not that important there is something else within and that within everybody's got it there is no human being that doesn't have that within unfortunately there are most human beings that don't even try to get there. And amongst those who do try, there are many who succeed, but many who don't, for the lack of determination. But we have not only the antidote against anger during the meditation, but we have the residual effect all day long. And also the interest to continue with the spiritual path and also the understanding that has to come automatically that our sense contacts will not be the answer to our search. The pot of gold lies within. It couldn't be nearer. It's the nearest thing to us that we have and yet we go all over the place trying to find it we make so many efforts and lots of them are of course misguided this is the third factor of the five factors that are included in meditation it's the first one of those that takes us past the method and as you have heard they all counteract each one a particular hindrance I'll tell you about the other two this evening because there are two more to be talked about